As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Well, hey there, you. Welcome back to the Straight A Nursing Podcast. I'm Nurse Mo, and I am so glad that you are here. Now, if this is your first time here, welcome. I'm super excited. I hope that you love this podcast as much as I love making it. And if you do love it, I want you to please subscribe because then magically every Thursday, an episode will just show up right there for you on your mobile device. You don't even have to think about it. It's just there for you, ready to study when you are. Now, today's episode is about Parkinson's disease, but I do want to take a quick minute to shout out to my San fam and say thank you to Darth, who took the time to write this thoughtful review. And Darth says, I found this podcast before I started my accelerated nursing program and enrolled in Crucial Concepts Boot Camp as soon as it was mentioned. I was so nervous starting nursing school and Nurse Mo helped me feel better about starting. My entire cohort is now listening to the podcast in preparation for exams and for when we feel overwhelmed. I'm so grateful for this podcast. Darth, I am so thankful for you and for all of my listeners around the world. So thank you so, so much for taking the time to write that and for getting your whole cohort listening to the pod. I absolutely love it. Thank you so much. So in today's lesson, we are talking about Parkinson's disease, and we're going to be diving a little bit deep into this to give you a really thorough understanding of what you need to know about Parkinson's disease for your exams. And this content, this episode is actually based off a Parkinson's lesson that I am creating for Beyond Bootcamp. So if you find it helpful, then you may want to check it out. And I will put a link to Beyond Bootcamp in the episode notes. Okay. All right. So Parkinson's disease, which you may see abbreviated as PD, is a progressive neurodegenerative disease that affects mobility. It occurs due to two pathological processes. So one, the accumulation of Lewy bodies and a premature loss of dopamine producing neurons. So two pathological processes, the accumulation of Lewy bodies and a premature loss of dopamine producing neurons. So Lewy bodies, and that's spelled L-E-W-Y, these are clumps of a protein called alpha-synuclein, and they are clumps of protein in the brain. So again, there's an accumulation of these and, and a premature loss of dopamine-producing neurons. So the portion of the brain that produces dopamine is the substantia nigra, and this is the area of the brain that degenerates in patients who have Parkinson's. 
a key consequence of decreased dopamine levels is the inability to refine voluntary movement. So Parkinson's also is going to reduce the sympathetic nervous system's influence on the heart, blood vessels, and other areas of the body. And this causes a wide range of symptoms. So we're going to look at this using the straight A nursing latte method. So L stands for look. How does this patient look? What do you notice about them? What are their signs and symptoms? So the four key symptoms that can help you differentiate Parkinson's disease from other neurological disorders are one, a tremor, two, muscle rigidity, three, postural instability, and four, bradykinesia or akinesia, which is slow movement. Bradykinesia is slow movement. Akinesia is no movement. So that's four things. Tremor, muscle rigidity, postural instability, and bradykinesia or akinesia. Now, the tremors are involuntary movements that occur at rest and are usually first noted in the arms, but can also occur in the feet, it can occur in the legs, the jaw, the mouth, even the tongue. The classic tremor with Parkinson's is a pill rolling tremor, which is the movement of the thumb with the other fingers. And it kind of looks like they're rolling a pill between their fingers. Note that tremors will worsen with fatigue and decrease with active movement. And then as far as that muscle rigidity goes, the patient may report freezing or feeling like they are stuck in place. So for the patient to be diagnosed with Parkinson's, they have to have at least two of these key symptoms. And it's really important to note that Parkinson's usually does not become symptomatic until the individual has lost like 70 to 80% of the dopamine producing neurons. So it's difficult to diagnose early. And because it is a progressive disease, of course, the symptoms are going to worsen over time. So for example, motor manifestations like tremors, they usually begin asymmetrically like in one arm and then progress to affecting both sides of the body as the disease condition worsens. Other key signs and symptoms that may be reported or noticed are the patient or family members may report that the individual's handwriting has changed with the letters becoming small and cramped. The term for this is micrographia, so you may see it referred to as that, and it's often considered an early symptom. Other things are a mask-like facial expression, and this is due to the rigidity of the facial muscles, and this rigidity can in turn lead to dysphagia and drooling. Hypophonia, which is a soft voice, and other changes in speech such as hesitation, repetitive words, halting speech, or even slurring could be present. You'll often see that the speech of a Parkinson's patient is described as monotonous. In addition to postural instability, individuals with Parkinson's will have poor balance, difficulty with their gait, and may take small shuffling steps. Psychologically, the patient may report depression, be irritable, 
express apathy, feel anxious, or insecure. They are also likely to report sexual dysfunction, fatigue, muscle cramps, and even pain. So sleep disturbances are also pretty common due to a variety of sleep disorders such as restless leg syndrome, excessive daytime sleepiness, insomnia, a coexisting obstructive sleep apnea, something called periodic limb movements of sleep, which you may see abbreviated PLMS, and there's another condition called rapid eye movement sleep behavior disorder. So all of those reasons could mean that your individual with Parkinson's reports some pretty poor sleep. More than 30% of Parkinson's patients will experience some cognitive impairment at some point as the disease progresses, and this varies from mild to severe dementia. In the later stages, patients can also experience Parkinson's disease psychosis, which includes visual hallucinations or delusions. And then we have disruptions to the autonomic nervous system. And I mentioned earlier that that can cause a variety of symptoms. And these include orthostatic hypotension, excessive sweating, bladder troubles such as urinary frequency and urge incontinence, and then a whole group of GI disruptions that revolve around slowed peristalsis. And these could be things like bloating, gas, loss of appetite, early satiety, nausea, abdominal discomfort, and constipation. So the key things, and I know that's a lot, but we're diving deep into this, but the key things that you'll likely see on exams are the tremor, rigidity, the shuffling gait, the mask-like expression, dysphagia, the monotonous speech, and drooling. Now, of course, your instructor may pick out some other random thing, but in general, those things are the most common. Okay, let's move on to the letter A. How do you assess the individual with Parkinson's disease? So you're going to be assessing those four key symptoms, right? The tremor, the rigidity, the postural instability, bradykinesia, akinesia, all those things that would be associated with Parkinson's disease. You want to observe their gait, their posture, their ability to ambulate. You're always going to be thinking about patient safety from this standpoint. You want to increase their mobility, have them be as mobile and independent as possible, but you have to balance that with the patient being safe and avoiding falls. You want to assess the patient for depression, ask about symptoms of depression such as loss of energy, insomnia or excessive sleeping, loss of pleasure in hobbies and thoughts of suicide. Anytime a patient expresses suicidal ideation, this is an emergency and you must not leave that patient alone. They need to stay under direct one-to-one observation until the crisis has passed and the individual has been cleared by a psychiatrist. You also will assess the patient for anxiety, ask about symptoms such as feelings of unease, feelings of worry, or even panic. Assess for physical symptoms of anxiety like difficulty breathing, difficulty swallowing, cold sweats, heart palpitations. Assess the patient's short-term memory, 
their attention, concentration, problem solving, all those cognitive tests. Assess the patient for pain because pain can be related to coexisting conditions such as arthritis and peripheral neuropathy or directly related to the Parkinson's. Dystonia, which is that sustained posture of the neck, arms, legs, or feet can cause pain. Restlessness and muscle and joint pain are all common in individuals with Parkinson's. Assess for that orthostatic hypotension, which definitely can put them at risk for falls. It can be caused by medications. It can be caused by loss of that sympathetic innervation in the heart and the blood vessels. So definitely these individuals are at risk for orthostatic hypotension. Assess the speech pattern for that soft voice, the slurring, the word repetition, halting speech, rapid speech, hesitation, all of those things. You also want to assess for bowel and bladder problems, again, incontinence, retention, constipation. Assess the patient for any difficulty swallowing because dysphagia will put them at high risk for aspiration. And assess their nutrition status, their appetite, and their weight. So the first T is for tests. What tests will be conducted for these patients? So diagnosis of Parkinson's is based on clinical findings after other neurological diseases have been eliminated. Like Alzheimer's, there's not a specific diagnostic test, but they could get some cerebrospinal fluid and analyze that to see what the dopamine levels are. That's something that could possibly be done. Other diagnostics such as MRI or SPECT, which is Single Photon Emission Computed Tomography, those could be done just to rule out other possible central nervous system problems. There could also be a Positron Emission Tomography, which is a PET. That and SPECT could be used to detect a loss of dopamine-producing neurons. So evaluations related to the symptoms of Parkinson's can include a speech therapy evaluation to assess for dysphagia and the risk for the patient aspirating. A barium swallow study could be done to assess for aspiration if the patient is aspirating. Occupational therapy evaluation would also be conducted as well as a physical therapy evaluation. The next T in latte is for treatments. What treatments are going to be provided? So for the most part, the treatments around Parkinson's are going to revolve around symptom management and dealing with problems as they come up. So medications for Parkinson's are aimed at increasing mobility and the patient's ability to perform their ADLs, their activities of daily living. Dopaminergic drugs and dopamine agonists relieve symptoms by enhancing dopamine levels, inhibiting the body's ability to break down dopamine, or mimicking the action of dopamine. So I'm going to say that again. Dopaminergic drugs and dopamine agonists, because remember, with Parkinson's, dopamine is the name of the game. So we're going to give medications to relieve symptoms by either enhancing dopamine levels, inhibiting the body's ability to break down dopamine, which would thereby increase dopamine levels, or by mimicking the action of dopamine. So again, dopamine is the name of the game. 
So it's really important to note that patients on long-term medication for Parkinson's often develop a drug tolerance or drug toxicity, which could be evidenced by changes in condition, hallucinations, or decreased effectiveness. So to manage drug toxicity, the MD may reduce the dosage, change the frequency, or prescribe a drug holiday which is particularly helpful with levodopa. And we're going to talk about all these medications. But a typical drug holiday lasts up to 10 days, and the patient receives no Parkinson's medications during that time while being very closely monitored for worsening of symptoms. So just kind of keep that in your mind as you learn about these medications. Have you ever wished that you had a direct line to your pediatrician to ask them all the questions that constantly crop up while parenting? Well, we hear you, and we have been there too. That's why we launched the Bites of Health podcast. Every morning, we'll answer a commonly asked pediatric question in five minutes or less. You can tune in while you're making your second cup of coffee or from the school drop-off line. Who are we? I'm Dr. Jess Steyer, a public health scientist and also co-host of the Unbiased Science Podcast. Every day, I'll chat with one or both of your new pediatrician besties, Dr. Dina DiMaggio, a general pediatrician, and Dr. Anthony Porto, a pediatric gastroenterologist. We'll talk about all the things related to our kids' health, from dealing with a colicky infant to navigating puberty in the teenage years. So be sure to tune in to Bites of Health, now live on all podcast platforms. So the first drug we're going to talk about is called Carbidopa Levodopa. It's a combination drug. The brand name is Cinemet, and it is given to reduce tremor and rigidity. So it's Carbidopa Levodopa. It's a combination drug. Because regular dopamine cannot cross the blood-brain barrier, we're going to give its metabolic precursor, which is Levodopa. Carbidopa prevents the destruction of levodopa, and that's why we give these two drugs together. We're going to give some levodopa, and we're going to prevent the breakdown of it. So we're going to enhance it as much as we can. The medication Cinemet is given on an empty stomach to increase absorption and that transport across the blood-brain barrier. Note that one unwelcome adverse effect with that long-term use of levodopa is dyskinesia, that slow movement, and the dyskinesia will become progressively more severe as the levodopa dose increases. So sometimes that might be why that drug holiday is introduced. Other significant and life-threatening adverse effects are related to the GI tract, and this could be GI bleeding. It could be an obstruction, could even be a perforation, and ischemia. This medication can also be toxic to the liver. It can cause pancreatitis and even peritonitis. And then some common, less common adverse effects are nausea, vomiting, and constipation. But if I was just going to try to think about carbidopa, levodopa in general terms, I would think GI issues as far as side effects go. So now let's talk about dopamine agonists, and these medications enhance dopamine by stimulating dopamine receptors in the brain, and these are typically used to, of course, decrease tremor and rigidity, but could also address restless leg syndrome and 
note that they are most effective during the first three to five years of use. Examples are apomorphine, promepixol, and rapinerol. So I probably will never be able to say those all over again. So apomorphine goes by the brand name Apokin. Promepixol goes by the name Mirapex, and Ropinerol goes by the brand name Requip. There's also a medication called Rotigotine, which goes by the much easier pronounced brand name of Nupro that is available as a continuous transdermal patch. And this one's often used to improve medication adherence in patients who have cognitive impairment or dysphagia. Some benefits of dopamine agonists are that patients typically have less incidence of dyskinesia and less of a wearing off phenomenon. So a wearing off phenomenon is where the patient has a loss of responsiveness to the drug over time. Some adverse effects include orthostatic hypotension, hallucinations, sleepiness, drowsiness, confusion, and lower extremity edema. The patient could also exhibit excessive impulse behaviors such as gambling, shopping, and eating. This is thought to be due to overstimulation of dopamine receptors in the area of the brain that are responsible for instant gratification. You may see a dopamine agonist used in conjunction with levodopa to reduce off time or to enhance the effects of levodopa. So off time means the medication is not working as effectively and symptoms will start to show up again. This often occurs when it's almost time for the next dose and the previous dose is losing effectiveness. So again, you may see a dopamine agonist used with levodopa to reduce that off time. Another type of drug is the COMT inhibitor, and these are utilized to prolong the action of levodopa. Catechol-O-methyltransferases, which is why we just say COMTs, these are enzymes that inactivate dopamine. And so if we inhibit or block these enzymes, we can prolong levodopa's action in the body. So an example is Intacapone, which goes by the brand name Comtan, and this medication is often used in combination with levodopa. So side effects include a harmless dark coloration of the urine, as well as diarrhea, confusion, and even hallucinations. So intacapone should definitely be taken with food, and that helps minimize the GI upset. Okay, now let's talk about MAOB inhibitors, and these are used to increase dopamine concentrations by slowing an enzyme that breaks it down. The medication Selegiline, also goes by brand name Depranil, if I'm saying that right, is often given with levodopa to patients with early or mild symptoms. And some promising research suggests that these MAOB inhibitors may slow the progression of the disease. Now, they can cause some side effects like dry mouth, nausea, dizziness, and constipation. 
and then when taken with tyramine-containing foods or stimulants such as those in cold medication, they can cause hypertensive crisis. So you have to be very careful about the interactions between MAOB inhibitors and tyramine-containing foods or stimulants such as those found in cold medication. So also you want to look at some drug-to-drug interactions that can occur, and they can be pretty serious with the MAOB inhibitors. Concurrent administration with opioids can cause a fatal reaction involving severe excitation, rigidity, hypertension, or hypotension, and coma. Okay, so we don't want to take it with opioids. You also don't want to take with SSRIs because the patient can have serotonin syndrome. It's really recommended that MAOB inhibitors be discontinued about two weeks before initiating SSRIs. And then concurrent administration with TCAs, tricyclic antidepressants, can lead to seizure, hyperpyrexia, behavioral changes, even asystole. So like with the SSRIs, it is recommended stop the MAOB inhibitor two weeks before starting TCA therapy. So lots of interactions, lots of considerations with MAOB inhibitors. There is an antiviral drug used for Parkinson's, and that is called amantadine, and it can potentiate the action of dopamine in the central nervous system, and it may be given in early stages to reduce symptoms. It is especially beneficial in reducing dyskinesias in patients who have advanced PD when they are taking levodopa. Common side effects of amantadine include nausea, dry mouth, insomnia, confusion, hallucinations, swelling of the feet, and lightheadedness. I feel like quite a few of these medications cause hallucinations. In rare situations, amantadine can cause urinary retention and a web-like purple discoloration of the skin called levito reticularis. Another type of drug is adenosine A2A antagonists, and these are used in coordination with carbidopa levodopa to reduce that off time. An example of this is the medication istradifilin, if I am saying that right. The resource I found online said it like that, so that's what I'm going with. Anticholinergic drugs were the earliest medications used to treat Parkinson's disease, so Recall that acetylcholine and dopamine maintain a balance in the brain. Anticholinergics are going to block the effect of acetylcholine, and this helps restore the normal balance of dopamine, which reduces the symptoms of Parkinson's disease. So anticholinergics such as benztropine, which goes by brand name Cogentin, they're used for severe tremors, severe rigidity, and are rarely the primary choice for pharmacologic treatment. They should definitely be used carefully or avoided in older adults because anticholinergics are on the beers list. And I did a whole episode about the beers list, which I will link to in the show notes. But they are avoided or used very carefully in the elderly due to anticholinergic side effects. And these are urinary retention, dry mouth, 
blurry vision, and decreased short-term memory. Additionally, research is showing that some side effects of anticholinergics can be related to cognitive slowing, so lots of reasons to avoid using them in the elderly if at all possible. Acetylcholinesterase inhibitors such as rivastigmine and denazepil are given to address the cognitive impairment of patients who have Parkinson's and a dementia. Common side effects include bladder control issues, drooling, and tremor. And then we have medications used to relieve the additional symptoms of Parkinson's, and these can include baclofen, which is used to decrease muscle spasm, Atropine sulfate given to reduce saliva production and drooling. I do believe atropine sulfate is an anticholinergic, which would put it on the beers list. Zolpidem tartrate, which is Ambien, is used to improve sleep. And venlafaxine is used for depression, but it is to be avoided if the patient is taking that MAOB inhibitor due to the risk of that potentially fatal reaction that can occur. Now, surgery could be an option when drugs are not effective in managing symptoms. So deep brain stimulation involves the implantation of electrodes in the brain. These electrodes are connected to a pulse generator placed under the skin, kind of like a cardiac pacemaker. And the generator is programmed to deliver an electrical current, which helps to decrease the dyskinesias. Stereotactic pallidotomy is an awake surgery that involves the insertion of an electrode or rod into the target area of the brain. And this is a small section of the globus pallidus. And this target area receives a mild electrical stimulation and the patient's response is assessed for reduction in the rigidity. And the probe can, you know, be repositioned around until they find the exact ideal location and then a permanent lesion is made that destroys that tissue hopefully leading to continued reduction in rigidity for that patient. And studies show improvements with this approach can last up to four years. So nursing interventions for a patient with Parkinson's disease are going to revolve around reducing risks, preserving motor function, and fostering independence as much as possible. So the two biggest safety concerns are falls and aspiration. You want to reduce fall risk wherever you can. For example, because of that shuffling gait, rugs and cords are really significant trip hazards. You want to make sure grab bars are in place at home in the bathroom and that the environment is well lit. You will also be monitoring the patient's ability to eat and swallow. Again, aspiration is a huge risk. Collaborate with speech-language pathology, that speech-language therapist, for a swallow evaluation if necessary. And that speech therapist may also teach the patient, you know, specific exercises to strengthen muscles for breathing, for speech, and for swallowing. You'll be coordinating with physical therapy, occupational therapy to keep the patient as independent and mobile as possible, always, always with an eye toward their safety. When communicating with the patient, 
you need to allow extra time for them to respond. If the patient cannot communicate verbally, then try alternative methods. You could use communication boards. You could use a computer device. When a patient with Parkinson's is in the hospital, really try to maintain their same medication schedule they use at home. One of the easiest things to do is just have their caregiver bring all their medications in for a thorough medication reconciliation. You'll also be promoting a diet with adequate fiber to prevent constipation, adequate hydration to reduce muscle cramping and prevent constipation, and increased calories to maintain an ideal weight. Remember, many patients get that early satiety, so you want them to get enough calories in. Now we're finally to the E in the latte method. How do you educate the patient and the family? There is a lot of education components about Parkinson's disease. So I'm just going to talk through a few of them. So some general Parkinson's symptom management things to teach are teach the patient to speak slowly and clearly. And with that, teach the caregiver, family member, whoever, to allow extra time for the individual to respond. You also want to remind caregivers that the patient may have impulse control issues. They could have altered cognition. They could have depression and anxiety. Remind them that the patient cannot control these symptoms. Teach caregivers about resources for support, for stress management, and respite care. And teach the patient and family to weigh the patient once per week and to monitor nutritional intake. You also want to teach the good sleep hygiene, encourage the patient to establish regular sleep and wake times, do things like reduce caffeine, limit naps, and avoid eating within several hours before bed can really help. Now, as for their medications, you want to teach, of course, that all drugs must be taken exactly as prescribed and that sudden cessation can cause some pretty serious adverse effects and worsening symptoms. The only time they should stop taking their medication is when the MD has prescribed a drug holiday. Teach the patient that some medications require titration, so an increase or lowering of the dose, and that it may take several weeks to get to that therapeutic level, so they need to be patient. Teach them that if they're taking those MAOB inhibitors to avoid tyramine, and tyramine can be found in cheese, it can be found in aged, smoked, and cured foods, sausages, red wine, and beer, maybe even gravy. I can't remember if gravy is one of them, but I'm having a nursing school flashback right now. Teach the patient to avoid herbal supplements, over-the-counter meds, alcohol. All these things can interfere with their medication. You want to teach them that vitamin B6 supplements specifically and foods containing high amounts of vitamin B6 should be avoided. These include organ meats, starchy vegetables like potatoes, fish, non-citrus fruits, and fortified cereals. And when disease is mild, patients could still be driving. So instruct them to avoid operating a motor vehicle if they're taking any medications that cause drowsiness. 
You also want to do some teaching around fall prevention and mobility. So teach the patient to move slowly when changing from a lying down to a sitting or lying down to standing or sitting to standing because of the risk for orthostatic hypotension. You also want to teach the patient that regular exercise routines like walking, strength training, cycling, swimming, and Tai Chi help maintain and possibly even improve their mobility, their balance, their coordination. Teach the patient to rock back and forth to initiate movement if they're having trouble initiating, and teach the patient to purposefully lift their feet while walking. You also want to teach the patient, especially the caregiver that changes in condition must be reported to the MD as soon as possible. Any altered mental status, severe uncontrolled movements, blurred vision, difficulty breathing could all be signs of something very serious and require immediate attention. So another element of the latte method that goes along with the E is evaluation. How would you evaluate the effectiveness of your intervention? So as always, evaluation is going to be very specific to your patient, to your interventions. But here are some examples to help you be thinking along those lines, okay? So if the patient is avoiding falls, That is an evaluation that says my intervention was effective, so the patient will avoid falls. If the patient states they know how and when to take their medications, then I know my teaching, my intervention on the teaching of how to do this was effective. If the patient demonstrates how to get up from a seated position slowly and does not have any dizziness or fall due to orthostatic hypotension, then I know my interventions around that were effective. And then if the patient is able to maintain an adequate weight, then you know the interventions surrounding nutrition and weight management have been effective. So I hope this helps you understand Parkinson's disease. How about we do a little bit of pod quizzing so that you can get a taste for it if you're thinking about getting into my other podcast study sesh. You can get a little bit of a taste of pod quizzing. So here's how pod quizzes work. I'm going to ask a question and pause for a little bit and give you time to answer, and then I tell you the answer. We're basically doing flashcards with our ears, okay? So question number one, what is the key neurotransmitter of concern in Parkinson's disease? I hope you said dopamine because we talked about it a lot, so good job on that one. And then we talked about there being two pathological processes that occur with Parkinson's disease. One of those was a premature loss of dopamine-producing neurons. The other one is the accumulation of what? Lewy bodies. And Lewy bodies are clumps of what? They're clumps of protein in the brain. What is the portion of the brain that produces dopamine? 
The Substantia Nigra. Very, very good. Okay, so we talked earlier about the four key symptoms that can help you differentiate Parkinson's from other neurological disorders. Do you remember what they are? And if you have trouble, I'll give you some hints, okay? But there were four. One of them starts with a T, and that was tremor. Very good. The next one started with an R. Rigidity. You could have also said muscle rigidity. And then the next one starts with a P. Postural instability. And then the last one was like two things. One starts with a B and then the other starts with an A, but it has to do with movement. Do you remember what those words were? Bradykinesia or akinesia, slow or no movement. Very, very good. Okay, let's do a few more. What kind of steps does a patient with Parkinson's typically take? Small and shuffling steps. Very good. And then how is the speech often described? Often it's described as monotonous. You may also see soft voice, hesitation, halting speech, or slurring. What is the brand name for the combination drug Carbidopa Levodopa that we talked about? Cinemet. And what does it do? What is it given to do for the patient? Reduce tremor and reduce rigidity. And what is the metabolic precursor to dopamine? Levodopa. Very, very good. If your patient needs to take a dopamine agonist, but they have trouble swallowing, what would be a good option for them? Maybe they would benefit from that transdermal patch called rotigotine. Brand name is Nupro. Why do we give COMT inhibitors? COMT inhibitors are given to prolong the action of levodopa. We talked about two drug classes that you don't want to take along with MAOB inhibitors. And there are other psychopharmacology drugs. Do you remember what those are? One was SSRIs and one was TCAs, so selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, SSRIs, and TCAs, tricyclic antidepressants. And then what kind of foods are we going to avoid if we're taking MAOB inhibitors? We are going to avoid tyramine. Very, very good. What drug class is rivastigmine? 
That is an acetylcholinesterase inhibitor. Very, very good. So if you like pod quizzing and think that that would be kind of a cool way to kind of study on the go, review things as you're out going on about your life, free yourself from your desk a little bit, it can be so dreary to sit and look at books and notes and computer screens all the time. And study sesh frees you from that. You can review and study and go over material in a very engaged and active way while you're off doing other things. I hear from students who use it while they're exercising, meal prepping, taking the dog for a walk, driving to class, commuting to clinical, all kinds of ways. So if you're interested in that, I've got the link in the episode notes. It currently has over 114 or so episodes, and we will be adding some more soon, including some really great case studies that I'm awfully excited about. This lesson on Parkinson's will also be crafted into a video lesson with a study guide for Beyond Boot Camp. So if you want to hop into Beyond Boot Camp, you can check that out in the episode notes as well. I will be getting the Parkinson's lessons up. Over the next few months, we're adding a bunch of new stuff to Beyond Boot Camp. And the cool thing about it is once you're in, you get all updates, you get all additions, everything absolutely free. So I hope to see you in study sesh or boot camp or beyond boot camp or all of them or here again on the podcast. Speaking of here on the podcast next week, we are going back to our blood glucose disorders discussion that we started a little while ago with hypoglycemia. We're going to talk about hyperglycemia next week. So I'll see you then for that. Bye for now. This podcast is brought to you by Straight A Nursing. Do you find it hard to sleep at night? Then the Sleep Cove podcast can help you. Hi, I'm Christopher Fitton, the voice and clinical hypnotherapist behind Sleep Cove. Sleep Cove features sleep hypnosis, meditations and bedtime stories all designed to help those of you who struggle at night to achieve a restful and peaceful night's sleep. Search for Sleep Cove on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and see why Sleep Cove helps millions of people sleep deeply all night long.